Uh, as you guys know, if you were here last week, we have started a new sermon series uh, for the spring, and we're going to be walking through the book of Matthew. And what we have in the book of Matthew is essentially a biography of this person, Jesus of Nazareth. It's, it's a book that tells us the story of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. And in this biography, uh, the author of the biography, Matthew, he's trying to accomplish something. He has an agenda because it's, it's not just a biography. It's more than a biography. That Matthew has a purpose that he's writing. He has something he's hoping to accomplish. And Matthew is very transparent about what he wants for you when you read his biography of Jesus. And he tells us about it at the end of the book. He records Jesus' last words before he ascends into heaven. Uh, and he records Jesus saying, Behold, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And Matthew, in writing his gospel, that he, he's fulfilling, he's living out that command of Jesus in what he wrote. Because his hope is that as you read his story of Jesus, that you're going to get to know Jesus. You're going to be introduced to him, perhaps for the first time, or perhaps in a fresh way. And Matthew's hope in writing this gospel is that as people encounter Jesus, that they would come to know and trust him and want to become a follower of his. They'd want to become a disciple. And I think we can say that Matthew has been fairly effective at that over the centuries, right? Because people have been reading Matthew's biography of Jesus and have been being convinced about the person and work of Christ for, for well, for centuries. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're here uh, exploring who Jesus is. Like, yes, come on. And our hope and prayer is that there would be people who, who meet Jesus. Maybe you for the first time, who are coming to say, yeah, we, we want to become followers of Jesus based on what we learn about Jesus in this book. Yes! Matthew was also writing this book with the hope that the people who read it would read it over and over again. Because he saw it not just as a way of introducing people to Jesus, but also teaching people about what it meant to be a follower of Jesus over the course of their lives that the way that Jesus thought about being his follower, the way Matthew thought about being a follower of Jesus, was that over the course of our lives, we would be consistently being conformed into the image of Jesus. So Matthew's gospel was written to be read over and over and over again and to be an aid in our journey of becoming more like Christ. So maybe that's you. Maybe you are already a follower of Jesus. And our hope and prayer uh, that is that as we study this gospel this semester, uh, you become more like Jesus. And I just want you to know that journey of following Jesus, uh, it's a journey that will require faith. Whether you're coming to Jesus for the first time or whether you're continuing to grow and walking with him, it is always a journey that comes with faith. And that, that faith often feels like fear. And if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time or if you've considered following Jesus, you know that. It's a scary thing to think about sometimes because what it means is that there are things that you will choose in your life that you would not otherwise choose. That because you have put your faith in Jesus, there are things that you will choose that you would not otherwise choose. 
and stepping out to, to trust someone who you can't see, even tr stepping out to trust someone that you can see, it's scary, isn't it? Of course. And in the church, man, we've got all kinds of ways of trying to deal with that fear and kind of manage it away. That if we can know enough facts about Jesus or if we can get into enough habits, we actually don't have to trust him in our day-to-day -day lives, but we can kind of write faith out of the picture. And guys, that's not possible. That to be a follower of Jesus means to live on that frontier of faith where you are constantly being pulled into fear and finding Jesus faithful in those places. So each week we're going to be talking about what it means to be a people who are walking in faith. And we're going to get to exercise that faith this morning uh, when we talk about politics. Oh, oh, guys, that's the most response I've ever gotten for just stating what the sermon is about. Right? It's a loaded topic. But it's one that we have to address because the Gospel of Matthew addresses it. Because we're going to get into it here in just a minute. Uh, and I want to invite you to engage from this place of faith because I don't care where you are. Well, I do care where you're, from and where you're coming from. Regardless of where you're coming from, uh, Jesus has something to challenge you about in the way that you think about politics this morning. And for you to step into what he has for you and for us is going to require faith. And here's what we're going to see as we study uh, the third chapter of Matthew this morning. We're going to see that Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom and that kingdom is political. And then we're going to look at specifically the politics of the king. So what do the politics of the king teach us about that kingdom? And then we're going to talk about how we live as loyal subjects in that kingdom. So the kingdom is political, okay? The politics of the king, then living as subjects in the kingdom. So that's where we're going this morning. So I'm going to invite Ellie Turner to come on up. Uh, and Ellie is going to be reading our scripture for us. We're going to be in the, we're going to read the whole chapter of Matthew 3. So if you have your Bibles... You can open up to Matthew, follow along chapter 3. Uh, and if not, it will be on the screen behind us. So you can follow along up there. All of them. The whole thing. Okay, Matthew 3. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness... Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks, Ellie. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we're thankful for your word. And Lord, we come to it this morning uh, humbly, Lord, confessing uh, that you are king and we are not. So through your Holy Spirit, would you be teaching us uh, how to live as subjects in your kingdom this morning? And we pray these things uh, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So here at the, at the very beginning of this chapter, uh, it, it starts out with the phrase, in those days. And what Matthew is doing is he's essentially hitting fast forward on the biography of Jesus' life. So he's moving us from this discussion of his infancy and, and kind of Jesus' childhood. He's jumping us forward to the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. I don't think we're going to be able to use that metaphor of fast forward for very much longer, but I think we all can remember that, okay? So that's essentially what John is do, or what Matthew is doing. He's hitting fast forward on Jesus' life, and he's jumping us to when Jesus begins his public ministry. And if that's like disturbing for you because it doesn't seem like the way the biography should be written, you just got to know that in the ancient world, that's how they did it, right? Scrolls were only a certain length, and you didn't have time to psychoanalyze someone's childhood. It's like, just give us the details about the, like the birth. How do we know that this guy is important and is who he says he is? And let's get into the good stuff. So that's what Matthew was doing in those days. And as he starts off this story about Jesus' public ministry, he introduces us to a character that we got to know. And this character is John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. It's pretty descriptive. John, the guy who goes around baptizing people. And if, and if you're ever curious, like, how do we know that the Bible is reliable or trustworthy? Is it giving us actual history? Uh, this is a great place of historical contact between uh, what we see in the scriptures and other historical sources that we have from that time period. So there's this guy, this Jew, Jewish uh, historian. His name was Josephus. So he, he, he wrote a history of the, of the Jewish wars and what was going on in Israel at this time. And this is what Josephus says in his history. He said, now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and that very justly as a punishment for what he did against John that was called the Baptist. So in, in Josephus' history, he's referencing John the Baptist. And this is how Josephus describes John. He says, John was a good man who commanded the Jews to exercise virtue, both as righteousness toward one another and piety towards God, and so come to baptism. He even says, many, other, many others ca came to him and were greatly moved by hearing his words, which sounds a lot like what we're reading in this passage. It says in verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. That's not really like the core part of the sermon. I just think it's a really important fact, okay? Fun fact that shows that, that the story that Matthew is laying out is a historical story. It's a true biography. And then Matthew, go, after introducing us to this person of John, he goes on to describe uh, John's, 
John's mission, his preaching. It's the most important thing for us to know about John. John's, John's the, wow, the message that John is declaring is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But that is John's message. It's the core of what he's all about. And Matthew thinks it's the most important thing for us to know about John. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And when John declared the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he was speaking to the, to the deepest desire of the people that were coming out to be baptized by him. And to understand that, we've got to like do a, a quick re- review of Israel's history. Okay? So the nation of Israel, it was this people uh, that came from this one guy, Abraham. Right? And God blessed this family, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it grew, and it became a nation. And this nation was enslaved by another nation, by, by the Egyptians, and God delivers them out of slavery. He brings them into a new country, and he gives them this land to call their own. He makes them a nation. And what he tells them is, you are to be my special people, my specific inheritance, and through you, I'm going to declare who I am to the world. The, through who you are as individual people, through the way you worship, but also through the way that you function as a community, by the way that you take care of each other and love each other, by the laws that you have that show how just I am, I'm going to be shouting out to the world who I am. That's why I've called you. But we know from Israel's history they didn't do a very good job of it. They struggled and they failed over and over again, and God was faithful to them. He disciplined them. He was teaching them. This is how you walk in what I've given you. And because God is faithful to his promises, right, that after repeated, uh, after repeated disobedience over the course of centuries, after God sending his prophets to speak on his behalf and warn the people, the way you were living is not good. God had to fulfill his promise and take the people out of their land. He sent them into exile. But even as he was sending them into exile, he was telling them through the words of his prophets, he was saying, uh, you're going to come back. There's a kingdom coming, and the kingdom that is coming is an even better kingdom than the kingdom that you had at first. And so the people, when they came back into this geographic land that they had been given, right, they they were brought back from exile, uh, but when they were brought back, they still remained under political impression from various empires. Kind of as that, like, Game of Thrones happened and unfolded, different people would come to rule over and to oppress Israel. But all the while, the people were hoping and waiting and expecting that God would restore the kingdom, that the kingdom that he would restore would be even better than the kingdom in the first place. So when John comes and he says, the kingdom is at hand, the kingdom is breaking in, they're pumped. It's finally happening. It's finally here. It's like when you order Uber Eats and your meal is en route, right? And you're like watching the car come towards your house. You're like, it's almost here. It's happening. It's coming. Yes, this thing, I, the bite of it that I've been waiting for is almost here. The kingdom's almost here. There's this deep sense of anticipation that John is calling out in the people because what you've got to understand is what these people expected was a political kingdom. What else can a kingdom be? They were expecting one kingdom to be wiped away and a new kingdom to be put in its place. They weren't expecting, like, essentially a new president, like, oh, we'll just switch kings. They were expecting an entirely new government. Their expectation was political. And if we're going to understand the gospel of Matthew, we've got to wrap our, our minds and our hearts around that because Matthew refers to the kingdom of heaven over 34 times in his gospel. It's a major theme for him that the kingdom of heaven is here. It's it's 
pressing in. It's breaking into our world. It was a big deal for Matthew because it was a big deal for Jesus. Which means it's a big deal for us as people who follow him. That we're people who are being called to live out the reality of this kingdom. Does that make you uncomfortable at all? Can I get any nods this morning? Just, are you with me? Does that make you uncomfortable at all? Of course. And let's just acknowledge that especially in the last half century, uh, Christians, specifically in the United States, have, uh, man, have taken kind of a, a perspective on the way that they engage in politics, that we engage in politics, uh, that has not been very helpful or faithful to the gospel. Because what we have done is reduce politics to a zero-sum game, where for me to win is for somebody else to lose. And where the desire to win comes at, that the, the desire for the win comes at any cost. They've said, we will do whatever it takes to win. We will wound people. We'll even uh, turn our backs on and betray the gospel for the sake of getting this short-term policy win that sits in front of us. That's obviously something that many of us recoil from. I think there's something else in it too. And part of the reason that we resist this idea of the kingdom being political is because we've agreed to what the world says about uh, the public square. So if you imagine the public square, it's an abstract space where people come to debate and talk about ideas and what's shaping us as a people, right? And what we've been told is that the public square is a place uh, where faith is not allowed to enter. We call it the, se- the secular sacred divide. Yes, like there's a place for your faith. It's just in your heart and privately in your home. But out here in the rest of the world, in the public space, you got to keep your faith out of that because this is a neutral space, right? Okay, but guys, here, here's, here's the lie there, is that everyone who is coming into the public square, they're all bringing their faith commitments with them. We all are. We can't not do it. Because there are basic foundational beliefs that you have about who people are and how the world operates that inform everything you think about the world. Like you have an idea as to whether or not you think people are basically good or basically bad or where they fall along that spectrum. And that view influences the way that you think about politics and the world, right? You have convictions about what freedom means and why we are free and what it means for other people to practice freedom. And you have an idea of what it looks like for your freedom and other people's freedom to interact with each other. There is no scientific basis for that. That's all a matter of faith. We're all bringing those faith commitments into the public space. And that can be a scary thing. I think what we have agreed to as Christians is to say, I'm so often, I'm going to leave my faith out of this because I'm afraid of what happens when I bring my faith into it. I'm afraid of what you're going to think about me when I start articulating what I believe about Jesus and what that means for the world uh, in any kind of public way. And I don't mean like a Twitter way. I mean like even in your conversations with other humans. Does anybody connect with that? Is anyone afraid of that? Because we are being invited uh, 
to tell a better story. That our politics would be so much, that it's so much more than a litmus test about how we see certain issues. But it's about telling a story of, of the truth of, of the gospel out into our world. There's this political thinker, his name is Leslie Newbegin, and he says this, he says, the call to the church is to enter vigorously into the struggle for truth in the public domain. We cannot look for the security which would be ours in a restored Christendom, nor can we continue to accept the secularity which is offered in an agnostic pluralism. Nor are we called, I think, to bring our faith into the public arena, to publish it, to put it at risk. No, we are called, I think, to bring our faith into the public arena, to publish it, to put it at risk in the encounter with other faiths and ideologies, in open debate and argument, and in the risky business of discovering what Christian obedience means in radically new circumstances and in radically human culture. This is in his book, Truth to Tell. That's true. What we believe as Christians is that there is a, such a thing as truth and that we're called to represent that to the world in the way that we live and the way that we speak and who we are and how we live together. But in that sense, we're being called into a kingdom that is political. But to understand what that politics looks like, we've got to look at the king. What is this politics that we're called to practice? We've got to answer, who is the king and what is he like? What is the kingdom that he's bringing? And this is exactly where John the Baptist would point us. John says to the people who are coming to him for baptism, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. That what John is saying is, he's saying, this, all this attention that I'm getting, all of this call that I'm giving you to the kingdom, he's saying, there is one coming after me. There is a king who is coming who is the one who will actually bring this kingdom. And John is saying, I'm just preparing the way for him. So John himself points us to the king who will come. And the king who comes is? Yes, Jesus, obviously, right? And that's what happens in this passage. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. That Jesus enters the picture. The king comes into the picture. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? that John is recognizing this is the one for whom I was preparing the way. And he's here. And what John consistently does in his ministries from this point forward, he points toward Jesus that John becomes less and Jesus becomes more. That we're, to, we're to look to Jesus to understand what this kingdom is like. And we get a clue for it in the very beginning of John's teaching, which is the word Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, which means do this internal personal work of turning away from your sins and turning toward God. Can we just talk about for a minute how radically different that is in the way that we typically approach politics? That John is saying to prepare yourself for this new political reality is to first recognize your own desperate need and insufficiency in and of yourself, is to recognize in yourself all of the ways that you're broken. That's the starting place for how we're going to engage publicly in the world is recognizing our own deep need for Jesus. 
So Jesus comes to John to be baptized. And the call for John's baptism that he's giving everyone else is repent. But here's the thing. John is aware of the fact that Jesus does not have these very public sins that he needs to repent of. That's why he says, I don't need to baptize you. You need to baptize me. Right? He's recognizing that there's something different about Jesus, that not only is he the king, but he's a king who is sinless. But Jesus answers him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Maybe you were in small group this week and one of the questions was, why did John baptize Jesus? Maybe everyone in your group was like, I don't know. Right? It's a hard thing to kind of to tease out. But, but we know that what John is not saying, what Jesus is not saying is that Jesus needs to be baptized for his sins. Right? We've talked about that. We also know that Jesus is not fulfilling the Old Testament law here because there's no Old Testament law about baptism. So what's going on? But what Jesus is doing in this passage is he is choosing to identify himself with us. That really, when you step back and you look at John's message, big picture, he's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's saying, there's a king who is coming and Jesus is saying, I am that king and through this baptism, I'm stepping into this story. I'm becoming like the people that I came to serve. That the king that we worship, that his first public pronouncement was to come and identify himself with us. Not to lord his authority over us, but to come in among us. It reminds me of Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. Any of you Lord of the Rings fans? We've talked about this before. If you've never watched it or never read it, I'm just going to encourage you. It's worth it because there will be illustrations that come from those things in these sermons, okay? That Aragorn is this... He's this king who is, who is king by right uh, and by like lineage. But he's a king who is, who is very distant from the throne, who has never actually claimed the throne for himself. And he lives a very humble life out among his subjects who have no idea that he's the king, who make up all kinds of names for him, who ignore him, who look down on him. But all the while, he's working for their benefit. All the while, he's working to protect them, to bring about this, this kingdom that they, have no, that they have no idea that they're longing for. All that is gold does not glitter, not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not weather, and deep roots are not reached by, by the frost. I was, I was describing Aragorn, this, this king who is unrecognizable while he's out amongst the people doing kingdom work. He described his own life by saying, I've had a hard life. He's had a hard life because of him coming uh, to defend and to serve his people. And that is our Jesus, that in his baptism, he, the king has come among us to love us and to serve us. And we see that confirmed in these signs that attend, that go along with Jesus' baptism. We hear it in, in the voice of the Heavenly Father who says, this is my beloved Son. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That phrase that God the Father utters over Jesus pulls from the Psalms. And it pulls from Psalm 2, which is a, a royal psalm, an enthronement psalm, a psalm that was sung when a new king was installed. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. That God the Father is calling back to the Psalms and he's saying, this is my son, this is your king. That God is endorsing Jesus' king. So he has not only John's endorsement, but God the Father's endorsement, which is a pretty good endorsement. 
And we also read that the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove, which I have so many questions about. Like, what did that look like, right? In all of the art, we see an actual dove, but he doesn't say it was a dove. He says it was like a dove. Like, what is like a dove? However it happened, okay, the Holy Spirit comes and it rests on Jesus. And this moment is a call back to the book of Isaiah, one of those prophets from the Old Testament who talked about the king who would come. Isaiah says, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. That the Holy Spirit descending on Jesus is, is an empowerment of Jesus for his ministry and is a recognition of the power that Jesus already has. And this, this callback to Isaiah, it's in a section of Isaiah where he's talking about the, this character called the suffering servant. And in all of these Old Testament prophecies, this kind of foretelling of the kingdom, there are kind of two different characters. There's this king who's going to come in might and reestablish God's kingdom. And on the other side, there's this suffering servant, the one who won't break a reed, who won't put out a burning wick, who was so kind and gentle and suffers on behalf of his people. And what we realize in Jesus' baptism is that the king who has come to establish the kingdom and the suffering servant are the same person. And that blew people's minds. They did not know what to do with it. And for the rest of Jesus' ministry, his closest disciples cannot figure it out because they want Jesus the king who's gonna come and restore the kingdom. And what they keep getting is Jesus the suffering servant and what they don't understand and what we so often struggle to understand is those things go together. That our king is the suffering servant and he shows his character as the king by being the suffering servant. Friends, that is our Jesus that he uses this identity as the king and the suffering servant. He puts them together and he comes to serve. So one of the other gospel writers, John, tells us in John 13, he says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come from God and was going back to God, all of which we just saw confirmed at the baptism, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And if you've been in church for any number of years, you've heard, you know this. Maybe you've not been in church, you haven't heard. I just want to remind you that for someone to, the slave who was called to wash someone's feet was the lowest of the low. That in Jewish households, people who were Jewish were not allowed to, to wash other Jews' feet. You had to get a slave that was from outside of the people of Israel to wash someone else's feet because the job was so disgusting. And Jesus is saying, knowing his identity, knowing that he is the king who has come from God, in that full knowledge of who he is, he's choosing to then come and serve. That's our king. As we've talked about politics, right? It's so much more than what issue you, how you check certain issues or what candidate you vote for. It's it's. In that broader sense, it's about how we choose to exercise power in the world. The politics is all about power. It's about how we choose to view and exercise and look at power in the world. And this is how our Jesus uses his power is to serve. And, and that flies in the face of so many of the political ideologies that are competing for our attention today, doesn't it? So many of the ideologies that would tell us, hey guys, 
Those ideologies are not unique to us. They were people in Jesus' day, they were called zealots, who taught that they were gonna bring the kingdom, who thought they were gonna bring the kingdom by political force and action, by violence. And after Jesus' ministry has ended, the, the, after Jesus' ministry ends, because he's up in heaven, right? The zealots, they, they continue to grow as a political force in Judea and Jerusalem. And what happens is before Jerusalem falls, there's all this rioting in the city. As there are parades happening, the zealots are in and amongst the parades knifing people to death. That was the, those were the tactics of the zealots. And they're present even in Jesus' day. Some of Jesus' disciples were like, hey, Jesus, these people who are opposing you, how about we call down fire from heaven on them? And Jesus is like, no, because that's not the way I came to do it, guys. That when one of his disciples picks up a sword and cuts off uh, one of the, the, the ears of the people who have come to arrest Jesus, Jesus puts it back on. That what he's saying is, you, if that's the way you think about the kingdom, if that's the way you deal with your enemies, you don't understand the kingdom. Because think about this. Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Do you know he washed Judas's feet? That the person who was about to betray him, like on the list of the bad of the bad in the Bible, Judas is at the top, okay? And Jesus knew what was going to happen, and our Jesus washed his enemy's feet. That's how Jesus does politics. And friends, that is good news for us because when we know ourselves truly, what we know about ourselves is that we in our sin are God's enemies. And that what Jesus has done is he's come to serve us, not simply by washing our feet, but by giving his entire self for our sake so that we could be made children of God, so that we could hear from the Father what Jesus hears. You are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. That's our Jesus. That we are the enemies that he loved even unto life. Okay, so let's just talk for a few minutes about what it means to practice those politics out in the world. Right? To be subjects of that kingdom. As the first thing that it looks like is repentance. That's how you come to the kingdom. Is by repenting, by saying, God, I'm sorry by acknowledging there are ways that we have lived that are not in line with the king and his kingdom values and priorities. That we would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry for the ways that I have misused power in my life. Jesus, I'm sorry for the ways that I have used power not to love and to serve other people, but to love and to serve myself. Jesus, I'm sorry. That we would come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm sorry because there are places I have been too afraid to recognize you as king. That we would say, Jesus, I'm sorry for the ways that I have, I have shrunk back from, that I have uh, decided that what you teach is not good. I'm sorry, Jesus. That in the com I want you to think about the conversations that you have with people when you were talking to the people who you think think like you. You know the conversation I'm talking about? When you're like, okay, those other friends left, but now that it's just us, right? And when you talk to those people, how do you talk about people? Because how you talk about people then tells you a lot about what's actually happening in your heart. And when you talk politics with those people, how do you talk about those people? Do you talk about them as people who are created in the image of God? Because if not, that's another place for us to repent. 
So we come to God in repentance and we say, I'm sorry. But repentance is more than saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is changing the way that we think and it's changing the way that we live. And one of the things that Jesus wants to change about the way that we think is he wants us to know and live in the reality that he is king. Now he's king. Here's the thing. After the election in November, November 20-whatever, Jesus will still be king. Regardless of who wins the election. Okay, and the good news, that's been the case the whole time. Like when I first became aware of politics was in the 2000 presidential election, Bush v. Gore, yes, okay. And what I heard as an 11-year-old was that this was the most important political election of my life, which was easy to believe because I was 11, okay? I didn't know any better. Four years later, Bush v. Kerry, yeah? Also, turns out, most, political, most important political election of my life. Next year, next four years, oh, Obama-McCain, guess what? Most important political, presidential election of my entire life. And it got even more important four years later when it was Obama-Romney. And look, I think a lot of us wish that we could go back to Bush v. Gore being the most important political or presidential election of our lives, okay? <laughs> I think we could, a lot of us would say that. But what was true then is true now, that regardless of who wins, that Jesus is king and he is on the throne. And we need to think differently about who Jesus is. And because we're thinking differently about who Jesus is, we can live differently in the world, which means that when you are consumed by fear or by anger, when you step into the political realm, you are not trusting the fact that Jesus is king. That's a place to repent. Say, Jesus, help me think and live and feel in this world differently because of the reality that you are king. And when you come in and you are totally hopeless when you look at all the world these days, guys, your Jesus is still king and he's still working. When we repent, we start from this place of humility and now we get to ask a different question, which is, how do I serve and love the people around me? And because one of the places that starts is here, in this community. And as we serve and love each other well, what we are demonstrating to the world is the power can be exercised in a different way. And here's a secret for you. Um, not everyone here believes exactly the thing, same things you do about politics. Ugh. So us loving and serving each other actually declares to the world that there is a kingdom that is bigger than what often appear to be our political differences. And that the way that we use power here is so much truer than the way that it's used out there. And then that the way that we serve and love each other would flow out into the way that we love and serve and use our power out in the world. Like one of my favorite things uh, is knowing how many of you are involved at the PTA at your school. I'm so pumped about it because what I know is that when you guys are in those PTA meetings, the what is true is that the people who are in those meetings with you are experiencing power in a different way. Because I know, because I live, I live with you. You guys serve us. I get to see you do it all the time. And I know that you are serving other people in our community and loving them in that same way. Guys, that's political. It's taking your acknowledgement that Jesus is king out into the world and you're making it public. Yes. Come on, we need more of that, don't we? You can tell the sermon's been in me a long time. I'm super pumped about it. Because it's important, because we have an opportunity to do this in a way that is different, that proclaims Jesus' glory and his nature as a servant king to our community. 
it's gonna be, we're going to be in desperate need of that over the next several months. And that we would say as a community, we are more committed to, to making Jesus uh, glorious, to, not to making him glorious, but to showing how glorious he is. And we're committed to that far above our own preferences, to our own parties or ideologies or candidates or, or media personalities. That our ultimate loyalty, our ultimate loyalty is to King Jesus. But that's the way that we're going to do this together. To proclaim the glory of our King who has come with authority and yet is also a suffering servant who chose to lay that down and to love his enemies, even people like us. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Lord, we live in a world uh, that is so divided, that's so full of hate and bitterness, Lord, anger and envy. Lord, a place where the political realm, the public square has become all about us showing each other, performing and, and pumping each other up for how righteous we are. And Jesus, we come to you this morning admitting that we are not righteous on our own or that what we desperately need is your righteousness to come for us. So Lord, would you humble us this morning? Would you call us to repentance? And would you lead us in the way of life? Amen.